From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And just like the uh, Public Charter School Commission, we love these recordings. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to the, uh, the, the comedy portion of the, uh, the podcast in, in a bit and, and recap the Charter Commission's meeting and how that all came down and, and some of the, the, the tension and the friction that was still evident in the room on Thursday. But I wanted to start talking about a story that we've talked about on the podcast for a couple of weeks that we did finally get to publish this week. Um, I had a chance to talk to Scott Green, the president of the University of Idaho, about what he's hoping to do at the university. So I wanted to kind of start there and sort of decompress and, um, you know, and, and do a little bit of a recap of what I talked about with him and kind of how it all ties together into a lot of higher education issues we've been talking about here the past couple of weeks. I really enjoyed this story that we published the other day at IdahoEdNews.org, your your profile of Scott Green and the University of Idaho president. It, it's well written. Uh, you reached out and talked to some legislators and some University of Idaho grads about this new hire. But I, I think it's interesting, and, and some of the things we've touched on on the podcast before um, it's uh, his background. You know, he was uh, a non-lawyer leading a law firm, and now he's a non-educator leading a university. And and but and, and kind of set us off from there. But what did you learn about Scott Green, and sort of what are his expectations, and what are the uh, the Vandal community's expectations for this new presidency? Well, let's do the cliff note version yeah. of his resume because I think it's important to set the stage so people know his background. Scott Green was born in Moscow. He uh, went to Boise High School. He graduated from Boise High School. He went back to Moscow. He went to the U of I. He got his uh, bachelor's degree in accounting. I want to say 1984 was when he got his bachelor's degree. He then went on to get his uh, MBA, his master's from Harvard. Doesn't know the fight song there, apparently. Does not know the fight song at Harvard, or at least he doesn't confess to knowing the fight song at Harvard because he says... Only know one fight song, and that's the uh, the Vandal fight song. Fast forward to the rest of Scott Green's professional career. It's an, it's an impressive resume. He's uh, run law firms. He was uh, a high-ranking official with an international law firm with, with offices all over the globe. That's where he was earlier this year when he applied for the University of Idaho presidency. And you're right, and that kind of that really struck me you know, looking at his resume and talking to him about his background, because as a non-lawyer, he had to work with lawyers. Mm-hmm, yeah. And now as a non-academic, he's going to work with professors. He's going to have to work with the faculty. And by his own accounting, this is a faculty at the University of Idaho that maybe is a little bit down in terms of morale. They've had a lot of turnover in the presidency. A lot of administrations have come and gone, and every time a new administration comes in, there's a whole new strategic plan. There's a and whole he said that won't be happening. And uh, he says, look, that's not going to be what I'm doing. We're not going to put you through the ringer. And he said, you know, I need to kind of win over the faculty by letting them do their jobs, by kind of staying out of their way, let them do research and teaching. They've been, you know, holding down the fort and doing this, but that's really where they want to focus their attention, you know, you know. They're passionate about it. They want to get to work. They want to get focused on that. And, and I think Green sees his role as just kind of staying out of their way on that to some degree and getting buy-in when he needs it on an initiative. As he put it, 
you don't run a law firm telling lawyers what to do. Right. The, the lawyers don't respond to that because they're, they're, they're smart, they're well-educated, they're skeptical, kind of a lot like university professors. So you don't tell university professors what to do. You, you tell them where you kind of hope to go, you get some buy-in, you win over their hearts and minds, and, and then you go from there. So I think I think he comes with a, a real understanding of what his his professional strengths are and what his professional strengths are aren't, you know, what, what's on his resume and what isn't on his resume. And as I talked to other folks uh, about the green hire, uh, I talked to Nicole Skinner, who graduated this spring. She was the University of Idaho student body president. She was on the search committee. She's very excited about the hire, but she says, yeah, there's a learning curve. I, I'm excited because he really knows the university and he really knows the community. And, you know, he, you know I think he's going to be really passionate but she acknowledges that there's a learning curve. I talked to Carl Crabtree, a state senator from Grangeville, who's also a U of I alum. And he said, you know, I think he's going to be a great salesman for the university. He's got a lot of ties to the university and the, the political community. But, he, you know, the big challenge for him will be getting over that hurdle of not being an academic. And as he pointed out, Chuck Staben, yeah. Green's predecessor, did have an academic background, did have a research He came background. out of the faculty. He came yeah. out of the faculty. He's going back to the faculty next spring. So, you know, it's a very different sort of a resume. It's a very different sort of a presidency. And I'm going to be fascinated to see what he can get done and how he's received, not just by the faculty and the alums, uh, because as Green put it, the faculty is kind of taking a wait-and-see approach. The alums are excited. The faculty wants to see how this is all going to play out, but I'll be curious to see how it plays out with the legislature, with uh, with the business community. You know, how how does this all work itself? Because it's a very different, it's a very out of the box hire. So, you know, I was fascinated by that, and I, I really wanted to try to get a sense of who this who this guy is, what he hopes to bring to to the job, and why he's doing the job. Because as he puts it. I took a pay cut, and I'm moving across the country to take this presidency, and I have no plans to do other university work. I don't plan to go to another university. This is it. Right. And he, he said flat out, I have not liked what I've seen going on at the university the past few years, and I think I can help. So he, he's taking on a, a big job. And I think that that part of his background is interesting and relevant to the University of Idaho right now, that he is part of the Vandal family, that he is an extremely wildly successful alum who grew up in Moscow, who's had a lot of family connections to University of Idaho over the years. But you talked about this uphill battle, and I'd like to get into what maybe people were saying about the expectations, because University of Idaho, I mean, he said it himself, not been happy about what's gone on the past few years, and there have been scandals at the University of Idaho with the athletic department, mm -hmm. yeah. with the football program. Enrollment is down more than 2.5%. Uh, there's some financial concerns. There's some financial concerns surrounding the University of Idaho law school campus in Boise. Mm -hmm. um, a difficult time for the university. What are your sense on some of the expectations? Because things probably need to change for the better. I he boils it down into three goals. He wants to improve the student experience and then can run the gamut for making sure that the campus is safe. Mm -hmm. 
which to, is which, which is, is one of the controversies. Which is an issue, and, yes. and that's not an issue unique to the University of Idaho. But, but campus safety is, you know, it's a paramount issue. Also, you know, part of that student experience is making sure it's an affordable experience for right. for students and their parents. Uh, he wants to continue to work on research and you know ensure that I, you University of Idaho uh, retains a strong research portfolio because he thinks that's important not just for faculty and for grad students but that it also percolates into the undergrad and extension programs that a lot of undergrads get a hand in research projects already and he wants to see that continue and part of it and I think this maybe goes back to that salesman role. He feels that the university has to do a better job of telling its story. And that goes into a lot of things. And it, I think it goes into that whole enrollment issue. I think he's aware of the challenge of trying to get students to enroll. You know, he's aware of the problems the state is having with the go-on rate, with the 60% uh, completion goal. I, I think he's aware that it's a tougher sell sometimes in rural Idaho that you really have to convince kids and parents hey, this is in your, your interest. This is a good long-term investment to go to school, get a degree, and take that with you for the rest of your life. So I think he's aware of those challenges. And it, it does dovetail into that, that diversity issue that we've been talking about so much in this podcast yeah. the past couple of weeks. Because I, I, I asked him about that, and I think we've kind of alluded to this already. When I asked him about the Boise State dispute, and right now the University of Idaho has been insulated from that dispute. I mean, the, the whole target of this politically is Boise State. But University of Idaho has diversity programs. I mean, most universities and colleges across the country are trying to figure out how to reach out to a more diverse student body. And Green's take on the whole thing is, I need to get more students at the University of Idaho. That's my job. And if I have to do programs targeting segments of the population that we're not getting at the University of Idaho, that's what I'm going to do. That was my job before the letter. That's my job after the letter. So I think he is definitely cognizant of the need to bring in a diverse uh, student body. Um, again, going back to Nicole Skinner, you know, she said that in the interview process, all of the candidates had good answers on diversity. She thought the Greens stood out, that he's really committed to diversity on campus, starting with his own leadership team, that he wants a diverse team, that he's really on board with this. And, yeah, it stands to reason. If you've worked for a global law firm, I think you're going to have a, a very open view to the value and the importance of diversity in workplace extended to the importance and the value of diversity on a college campus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it'll be interesting, but that's one of the things that we can, as we sort of watch his tenure and administration unfold, that's one of the things that we can find out kind of in the short term is who does he surround himself with? What does that team start to look like? Uh, because school's going to be getting geared up this month. Uh, it always seems like the legislative session is right around the corner, but it really is in January, and this could be a big year for higher education. So I expect that that team will be coming together. So that will be sort of one of our first check-ins is to see who does he surround himself with, who does he retain from the existing team, who does he bring in, who, who doesn't continue on with him. But that's one of the things that we'll be able to, to check in on, on right. the short and term. And how do his initiatives mesh with the initiatives that they had at the campus before? Uh, a lot to watch. But what I tried to do with this story is kind of give readers a sense of who Scott Green is 
why he came across the country to go back to his hometown and his alma mater and what he's hoping to accomplish. So hope you check out the story at idahoednews.org. Uh, it's part of our kind of informal continuing series of, of introducing you to some new players in, high, in education, whether it's Kobe Dennis at the Boise District, uh, Debbie Critchfield, uh, the president of the State Board of Education, C. Scott Green, Hopefully we'll be able to do a similar story uh, about Marlene Trump. If here. Dr. Trump is listening, you can get a hold of us. <laughs> send me a tweet or send me an email, Dr. Trump. We would love to sit down and talk to you and get a better sense of what you're hoping to do. Yeah, absolutely. Check out the homepage, idahoednews.org, for the feature on green, as well as any of the other recent features about the new changing landscape of education uh, some of the profiles that we've done and continue to do. But I want to move on, Kevin. You attended the Charter Commission meeting this week. Uh, they were reprimanded by the Office of Idaho Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. They admitted to breaking the law as expected. But what did you see in the meeting and what played out? And then let's get to some of the... Uh, the meeting didn't clear everything up, and let's get to that at the no, end. But No, it sure didn't. It was... It was Let's start with the, yeah. the headline, yeah. because we can get through that fairly quickly. Um, the Charter Commission agreed that they broke the law with this controversial executive session. It was that April. meeting in that April behind closed doors. executive session. The tape was released of the yes, audio. Yes, And, you know, the commission hardly discussed the legality of the meeting. They, they didn't really go over the Attorney General's report at all. Uh, they didn't debate it. They just, you know, made a motion to adopt the report and to admit to violations. And there was no debate. And they voted unanimously. Yeah, yeah, we violated the law. And I don't think there's much of a surprise there. If you read the report, it's about as damning a report as you're going to see on an open meetings issue. It seemed like you could take your pick. How many ways did this Charter Commission break the open meetings law in yeah. one meeting? It, it's sort of a, it's a buffet of violations. And if with, you listen, and if you, with a deputy attorney with general, a deputy in, the attorney room. general in the house, yes, it, it, it's it's really bad. The it really is for me really raises credibility questions about was this the first time? I don't think so. How often does it happen? And with what other governing agencies? But uh, I mean, that, my that goodness, came, and that came up in the comment period, and it's escaping my mind who said it in the comment period. But one of the critics said, "You sounded awfully comfortable in this executive session that you know went far astray from what an executive session ought to be," implying that hey, this has got to be <laughs> this has got to have happened. Is this before. business as usual? This is, this, is I mean, this business as usual? And. So if you read the report, it's a damning report. If you listen to the audio, it it sounds like an ice cream social that turns really catty really quickly. It's it's bad. It, it is it, it's bad. So that part of the meeting dispatched fairly quickly because mm -hmm. there was no dispute about whether the meeting broke the law. I think everybody in the room knew that there was a violation. What I came away with was a, a sense again that there is a real rift between oh, yeah. the charter commission and some of the charter groups, charter schools under its uh, supervision. That came through in the meeting, and, and I don't think admitting a violation, uh, doing a mea culpa, you know, making a little bit of an attempt of a joke about well we love our recordings, 
Um, I don't think that played real well with the uh, with with the critics, and they came out in force. I I think there were more opponents uh, speak than defenders of the Charter Commission, and over and over, what you heard from the critics was, "We don't trust you. We can't trust you at this point. You know, you're." It's not just that you broke the law. You violated our trust because we don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about us behind closed doors. Um, that's going to be a really difficult relationship to, to mend. Definitely there's a rift there. And I also wonder, I'm not sure I know enough to call it a rift, but there's definitely a difference of opinion. And this came through in the meeting on Thursday within the Charter community about the Charter Commission. Yeah. And I... You know, you had, you had speakers like Teresa Molitor, who is a lobbyist now in Boise. She served on the board for Heritage Academy, which is the school right in the center of this hurricane. She said, you have looked down your nose at us for years at Heritage Academy. What I heard in that tape didn't surprise me because you've been condescending and disdainful towards this school for years. Uh, and you heard other folks saying, you know, you're, you've lost touch with your role as as a commission uh you know basically the the role of the commission as some people say it is is to provide an avenue for charter schools to get authorized to to get you know licensed and ready to run but you had other other speakers from other charter schools say no you have a role to play here as of oversight and yes sometimes that oversight is difficult and sometimes you've pushed back at us with questions about our finances and student performance, and that's made us better schools. You have to continue to do that. So you've got this rift between, and again, I don't want to call it a rift, but you've definitely got this difference of opinion between some of the, the charter schools that want a wholesale change. They want this commission either disbanded or changed or reworked. They want resignations. They want a house cleaning. As opposed to other charter schools, and granted these are some of the higher performing charter schools in the state, saying you're doing your job and yes you violated the law but you're doing your job and it's an important job to keep us on task to keep us you know improving to to watch over our performance as schools to watch over taxpayer dollars very different view about what this charter commission should be doing going forward and needs to be doing going forward and you know it's like they were talking about two completely different charter commissions. I know. And that's the thing that I'm interested in because, again, this is a discussion about the role of the charter commission. And, and so on the one hand, it appears that some people are saying that we view your job as to help in the proliferation of the charter school movement, to help authorize new schools, expand our focus, almost have a sort of cheerleader and support role versus some other folks who are saying, yes, but... Also, aren't you guys really supposed to provide some oversight and some accountability here, help keep us focused and on task, and and provide that level of oversight and accountability? And so I think that the very different interpretations of what the commission's role is and should be, and I think that's wildly interesting. Right, and, and go back to the track record. Uh, we wrote about this a couple of months ago, a report on the Charter Commission presented to the Charter Commission suggested yeah, you're you're approving too many schools. You're not, you know, maybe you're not providing enough pushback at the application process. Um, and that's a third party. That's you know not one of the charter groups uh, on one side of this debate or the other. It's going to be really interesting to see how this commission 
does its work going forward, what kind of role it, it plays, whether there's any uh, momentum behind trying to change the Charter Commission. I don't sense it at this point. I don't sense that Governor Little or House Speaker Scott Bedke is, is in any big hurry to change the, the makeup of the Charter Commission or you know, reconstitute the commission. But there are some serious lingering issues. Um, you, you didn't have to listen long to the meeting on Thursday to, to get a sense of that. Yeah, if you want to get caught up, if you want to find out who was at the meeting and what folks said, head on over to the homepage, idahoednews.org. But this isn't an issue that's going to go away. Uh, but charters are a discussion point that keeps coming up during the legislative session, including the oversight and accountability of charter schools. Last year, as we've talked about, the legislature passed a new law to change the requirements for administrators of charter schools. A lot of critics of that law said it was watering them down because they made it so that a charter administrator would not necessarily have to have formal education experience mm -hmm. or an education certificate. Um, but I think that's one of the things that I'm interested in and that we're interested in is as charter schools expand. And they are expanding. And they are expanding greatly, and they have over the last 20 years. Who's watching the shop? Yeah. Who's, accountable, who's accountable for these charter schools? And we've identified, obviously, some of the highest performing schools in the state are charter schools. Some of the schools that struggle are also charter yeah. schools, particularly online and, and virtual in some cases. But that's something I'm interested in, this oversight and accountability uh, of charter schools. Because they don't, and this is an important point, have locally elected school trustees who are accountable to voters in their neighborhood. They don't have that. And, and so who is watching the shop uh, in our charter schools? And when I mean watching the shop, real simple. Watching out for student achievement and the expense of taxpayer dollars. That's right. what I'm looking right. for. And, and the why should you care about this? As charter school advocates take pains to say uh, to anybody who'll listen at any opportunity, charter schools are public schools. Well, they are definitely publicly funded schools. So your tax dollars are going towards charter schools maybe less per pupil than to a traditional school, but charter schools are getting public funding and they are growing. Uh, as Devin Bodkin reported yep. earlier this week, uh, we're expecting to see another 2,000 plus charter school seats filled next school year. So that's going to bring it well above 25,000 students across the state are going to be going to charter schools. If you made that into a standalone one school district, it's, it would be the second largest school district in the state. Uh, Charter schools are a large segment of Idaho's uh, school ecosystem, and you know, and that's not changing anytime soon. So, how this commission plays into that, the fact, the, the role that this commission plays in the charter sector is really important. So yep. we'll be watching it closely. So, while the issue of the legality of the April 11th meeting has been settled, there is a lot still to to sort out here. Yep, for sure. We'll continue to follow it. Uh, you continue to count on us for, for updates there. I want to shift gears. Hundreds of school administrators, Kevin, were in town this week uh, for the IASA annual conference. Kind of signals. We both spent some time there. We both spent a little bit of time there. It kind of signals the end of the summer and looking ahead to the next school year. I think this is when administrators really get back to work. But we tracked some of our policymakers and state leaders uh, throughout the convention. Earlier in the week, you saw Governor Little speak. Um, what did he tell the administrators? Largely, what he told the administrators was um, not terribly surprising. It was fairly much a recap of 
where we've gone the first seven months uh, of, of his time as governor and what he hopes to accomplish uh, going forward. Largely a recap uh, discussing the, the new law to increase minimum teacher pay, the new law to add money into literacy programs. Uh, his he played task, the hits. His task force, <laughs> yes. I mean, it was, it was definitely a greatest hits uh, with, a, with a little bit of discussion about where we go going forward. He didn't really talk too much about uh, where he'd like to go in terms of teacher salaries, except to say that this is a continuing issue, in, especially in border communities. Um, definitely restated his commitment on literacy, and that ties into the task force because he's hoping that his task force provides recommendations on literacy and on uh, college and career readiness. Touched on a lot of these same topics later in the day when he spoke to the Boise Metro Chamber of Commerce, so not a whole lot of new ground broken by the governor. Uh, notably, he did not bring up the Charter uh, Commission controversy, nor did he bring up the Boise State diversity uh, controversy at, at either stop. Uh, he did talk to Jimmy Dawson, yep. our, our friend at Boise State Public Radio, after the chamber speech, voiced support for the diversity programs at Boise State, but as I reported, didn't bring it up during his speech to almost 400 business leaders from around the community, including Marlene Trump, who was in attendance. I mean. He, he had an opportunity to maybe take that message to a wider audience, but didn't. But he did signal that he thinks that those are valuable programs that he would like to see continue. So that was kind of the news we got from, from Governor Little on Wednesday, and you can get the recap at idahoednews.org. Clark, you were there uh, Friday to hear from State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra. What did she have to say? Just got back, actually. Uh, just walked back over to the office from hearing the superintendent speak. I, I thought this was actually one of the more interesting speeches that I've heard the superintendent give recently. She basically called on school administrators, particularly superintendents, to stay engaged with policy debates, particularly this funding formula proposal, which we expect to resurface during the 2020 legislative session. She thanked Kevin. She thanked school administrators for taking time out of their day, sometimes on very short notice, to go out during the most recent legislative session to share their thoughts, their concerns, and their feelings about the last funding formula proposal. And she really credited educators with being the reason that the legislature put the brakes on that proposal, didn't move forward with something. And she said, I want you to stay engaged. There's going to be a public hearing later this summer about defining and, and tracking enrollment. She wants their feedback on that rulemaking process, and she wants them to stay engaged, work with their legislators, and show back up during the 2020 legislative session, saying she's depending on them, she's counting on them. Well, and she has a point about the 2019 legislative session and the presence that we saw from school administrators on this issue. I mean, I'm going back in my mind to that, that Senate committee hearing that I think we both sat in yeah. on. You had superintendents from large districts and small from all over the state almost unanimously urging that the Senate Education Committee to slow down, yeah, yeah. put the brakes on this thing. We don't understand how the numbers work, why the spreadsheets are changing. We don't know why we're winning or why we're losing. I mean, especially districts that, that stood to lose money. How does this work? Why, why is this happening? And I think, uh, I think in the absence of a united consensus from the education community, I think the legislators did put the brakes on it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that was definitely a factor. There were, there were a lot of factors in terms of 
why this thing didn't fly politically. But I think the, the pushback from administrators, I don't think that was lost on legislators. Well, and it was a really interesting legislative debate, and it was one of a handful of times where public feedback really informed the policy debate. You don't always see that, right? Sometimes you'll see a hearing and something will be wildly unpopular and it'll pass the legislature easily anyways. That was not the case this time. This appears to be a case where public feedback, particularly from the field, from the educators that are going to have to implement this funding formula, really appeared to sway the debate and put the brakes on that. We don't always see that happen. And so just by and, virtue of that alone, and, it was and interesting. maybe because this is such a complex and technical issue, I think maybe legislators really were yeah. more open to hear from the field. Hey, you, you work with these numbers all the time, superintendent. How does this work or does this work? How does this make sense to you or does this make sense to you? I mean, it's not a, it's not a values issue. It's not an emotional issue. It's not a hot button issue. You don't have a visceral Emotional yeah, right, reaction right. to changing the funding formula. It's not, you know, sex education or, or an issue like that. So I think maybe you had legislators who, who really were uh, honestly and sincerely trying to get a read from, from their communities and from their community leaders, uh, their education leaders in their legislative districts. So I suspect, you know, I suspect superintendents are going to take uh, Ibarra up on this and, and be involved in this issue in the 2020 session. I know we're going to be writing about it a lot yep. and we're going to be in, in hearings about it. And I suspect we're going to you know, hear quite a bit from administrators along the way as, as will legislators. Well, I think it was an astute speech from Superintendent Ibarra Friday morning, this morning as we record, because she's saying, let's team up. I want to hear from you. We're in this together. Um, and I think that that, that was powerful and, and strategic and so I think that that was interesting. Yeah, because the administrators raised a lot of concerns about going forward at the same time that Ibarra was raising yeah. concerns about going forward. They were fairly closely aligned on message and on talking points. So, yeah, I, I, I think that you know, her reaching out to the superintendents ahead of this debate in 2020, um, yeah, I, I, think it was, you know, I think it was a calculated and, and savvy political move. Yeah, and, and, and i got to say she got a really warm reception uh, from Dr. Marianne Reynolds, superintendent of the West Ada School District, the largest school district, uh, a really warm reception at, at, at that event. And so it was kind of interesting. It, it, it did transpire fairly quickly, the, the, the speech that she gave, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, it looks like she was reaching out to, to build some bridges and work together, and it looks like that her and Dr. Reynolds genuinely really like each other and, and respect each other. And, and I thought that that was just really kind of interesting to see. And so if you want to find out more about that on Friday afternoon, I'm publishing a, a story about uh, about her speech and what the superintendent said. So you might want to check that out at IdahoEdNews.org. Okay. Well, I think that kind of catches us up on this week, and it's been a busy week. Uh, we'll be back with uh, more stuff next week. Uh, you will drop a story on Monday. If you're listening to this over the weekend, come back Monday morning. We will have you kind of a have. deep dive on some data, the latest data behind our teacher evaluations. Those are increasingly important in the state of Idaho and also increasingly controversial because the legislature did tie, uh, partially tie, an educator's ability to earn higher pay through the career ladder through performance on evaluations. So I checked in with a couple different superintendents from across the state, education policy experts. And um, yeah. We'll break down the numbers so you can get a sense of what's happening in yep. your district, how how teachers in your community are being graded yep. by their administration. So we'll have all of that on Monday morning. 
And I suspect we'll have a full week of stuff again because this has been the summer that uh, won't die down. Yeah, we're just about a week and a half away, really, from the task force really heating back up again. Uh, the 12th and 13th of August is going to be two big meetings that I plan to staff. Uh, so we'll keep you in the loop there as they get closer and closer to Governor Little's fall deadline for delivering recommendations. That could really shape this 2020 legislative session. Yes, yes it will. All right. Well, thanks so much. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast attempting to break down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. If you're not already and you're on Twitter, you can give us a follow at IdahoEdmonds. But as always, thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.